Welcome to Reason for Hope, a weekday Bible answer program from Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I hope you enjoyed your Super Bowl weekend, and uh, what a crazy weekend that may have been for some of you, but um, uh, we're so glad that you've joined us. Uh, we do a live stream every weekday from 5 to 6 p.m., and you can follow along with us uh, on multiple platforms. For example, if you're following along on Facebook, you can go to our Facebook fan page, which is at CCF Tucson, and you can, uh, of course, we would love for you to give us some likes and some shares, but you can, in live chat, ask questions about the Bible, the Christian worldview, uh, answers to questions that skeptics might ask about the Christian faith. You can also follow along on YouTube, where we live stream the same broadcast every day to our YouTube channel. Please subscribe and hit that notification bell if you would like to, and share this video, comment on this video, so that we can uh, get more and more people to follow along. That's our YouTube address. Uh, pastor Scott Richards is our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and you can follow him on Twitter. That's his Twitter handle there, at ScottR4H. <clears throat> you can also post questions. If he's here in studio uh, taking your questions, you can leave questions on his Twitter feed, and he'll actually answer those questions. And if you want to watch the live stream on not a social media platform, but directly on our website, you can go to CalvaryChristianFellowship.com, and you can watch live by hitting the live button, and you can actually interact with people in chat while watching this program, including our weekday services. <clears throat> with that being said, I want to introduce our panel of Bible answer guys. <laughs> Here today, this is uh, Pastor Bo Olette to my right. How you doing, Bo? Good, doing well. Just got back from Utah and had a wonderful trip there, and, and it's good to be back on the show. Good deal. And of course, Pastor Peter Martin, a regular here on A Reason for Hope. How are you doing? Doing good. Glad you were able to fill in. Pastor Scott is normally here on Mondays, but uh, he's on uh, vacation or mm -hmm. Yeah, up in California. Right, and so uh, <clears throat> he's uh, filling in for Scott today, and uh, uh, Peter and Sean, uh, Pastor Sean will be here tomorrow, and uh, so please uh, remember that we have uh, quite a variety of, uh, uh, of personalities and uh, people who have different areas of study that they're focusing in on at the moment, so you're going to get a really wide array of perspectives and uh, knowledge, which is really phenomenal. That's what I really love about this program. Uh, before we get to your questions, we always take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be with us, to give us the right words, uh, to give us grace as we attempt to ask, <clears throat> answer some very difficult questions about life, about meaning, morality, destiny, what the Bible really says, and what it means to us today. So let's take a moment to do that. Uh, Pastor Bo, would you be so kind as to lead us? Yeah, absolutely. Father, we thank you so much for this time. Uh, thank you so much for uh, a place to have a voice to share uh, from your scriptures and things about your word. Uh, we pray that you be honored and glorified in everything we do. In Jesus' name, mm -hmm. amen. 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 <clears throat> hey, and by the way, um, you mentioned the Super Bowl, like, and I was like, Super Bowl was yesterday, huh? I didn't, I didn't even know. I, we didn't even get it. <laughs> we didn't get the memo, man. Dang, it's like, dude. I knew it was yesterday, and then I got after church. I, I uh, spaced it totally. So who won? I I the Kansas City Chiefs. I think they Kansas did. City yeah, Chiefs. I caught ten minutes of the whole game. I only oh, knew that yeah. because Philadelphia rioted afterwards. Oh, did <laughs> Don't they riot either way? <laughs> yeah, they riot either way. But they're either rioting or celebration. <laughs> was there was there like a bad call or something? In yeah, the there was like a supposedly a bad call. Again, I'm just pulling this off of 
<laughs> what Philadelphia is saying. <laughs> it was probably totally justifiable, but you know. <laughs> so the whole game was uh, was uh, decided on by a bad referee call. That's what you would assume the by the riots. Yeah. Now, to be fair, the Eagles did have a. F- a 14-point lead at halftime. Maybe oh, that's why wow. they won. And they blew it. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it's a little well, frustrating. Well, you know, Martin Luther King said rioting is the language of the unheard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure they didn't feel heard in that stadium, man. Didn't, didn't uh, Philly, though, win it like a couple years back with the uh, – you know, so they should be stoked. I they mean, should you know, be. they won not too long ago. How many rings you want, guys? I mean, it's all you know? about equity, and uh, <laughs> you know, and so we have to be equitable in the Super Bowl. Equitable in the Super Bowl. That's right. That's funny. That's funny. Um, so, uh, I, you had mentioned to start off, we were going to talk a little bit about the subject of love. Yeah. And uh, I guess there's an ongoing conversation about its <laughs> meaning, and it's really appropriate because in our day and age, in our Western society, people often characterize love as an emotion. You know, uh, how could it ever be wrong if two people love each other? You know, you hear that in just about every possible scenario imaginable, as if somehow love uh, justifies all sorts of behavior. Uh, and and understanding the concept of love from a biblical worldview is not only necessary, but probably I would be safe to guess life-changing as far as how it economizes in a relationship yeah yeah no i was uh yesterday i was giving a sermon about love and i was focusing in on matthew 22 where jesus responds to the question of what is the greatest commandment and his response is uh the first and greatest commandment is to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and the second is like it love your neighbors yourself and <clears throat> i pointed out that this was a really controversial and revolutionary idea. The idea that love ought to be the supreme ethic, that love ought to be the thing that we aim at and orient ourselves towards beyond anything else. And the modern day, like what we have to understand as Christians is that the modern day push towards statements like what Adrian just said, well, how could it be wrong if two people love one another? That is, a, that is an ideal that can only come about from a Christian worldview. So the ancient Greek philosophical era would have never said that because they never thought that love was the supreme ethic. They never thought that love was the thing that you should orient your life towards. They would say something like um, maybe uh, not love, but maybe justice uh, or maybe the benefit of their society or something like that. Do you think like, do you think today like what uh, there's been like a, um, a replacement of a word, uh, a word is in a sense usurped, Hmm. another word so instead of uh, we say love Hmm. but really we don't mean love right we maybe mean things like happiness right you know like um you know i i'm happy with this person right you know so therefore it's right right you know where when we use the word love probably far too many times (laughs) in the culture (laughs) yeah that's what i mean by the words usurped other Mm -hmm. words yeah. Um, and maybe it is because of our Christian um, background yeah. that the word is, ha- takes such prominence. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it seems like that's not what's being meant. It seems like happiness is probably No, I, I think you'd be right. Or, or maybe strong, passionate feelings. Yeah. Uh, or maybe just erotic desire. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Tom Holland, not the actor who plays Spider-Man, but the historian Tom Holland from Oxford, 
he wrote a book called Dominion, which is actually really excellent, and he goes over the history of the church. And one of the things he mentions when he's going over the 1900s is he focuses first on Martin Luther King, the figure of Martin Luther King, and how he was utilizing the tenets of Christian love to underpin his growing dissidence against, um, against segregation within the South and the fight for civil rights within America. And then he fast forwards just a little bit later to the Beatles singing All You, ha- All you Need Is Love. Right. And he points out the difference. He says the similarities are is that both people believe that love is the supreme ethic. The difference is, is that Martin Luther King defines his love based on what the Bible says, where the Beatles define their version of love based on what they're feeling, right? They have no clear definition of what they mean when they say all you need is love. So a Christian might hear that message and say, well, that's true. Yeah, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, right? (laughs) That's, That's all we really need. But if you don't define what you mean by love, and if you, as you said, Joe, uh, Bo, switch the definitions from biblically founded uh, objective love to simply subjective feelings of erotic pleasure or uh, emotional happiness, now you really haven't created a structure that which you could build a society on. You've actually torn out the foundations of a structure, and now all you really have is chaos and subjective pleasure. Yeah, so. and, and and this... This kind of brings up um, something that I wanted to, you know, kind of talk to you about a little bit um, before we get to the questions. And by the way, if you're listening to the show, you certainly can um, put in your questions on the social media and Adrian will get that and we'll get to your questions in a minute. But we are talking about love and Christian love and what really is Christian love or kind of moving in that direction. But you mentioned yesterday in one of the sermons that that the, so- the society that we're living in right now is really a dangerous, it has a potential and a high risk um, uh, to be very dangerous right. because it, it uses the word love, right. but yet you, you brought up a, a good point, and that is when you ask someone what is love, right. no one knows how to define it. Right. And so can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, what I said in the sermon, and, and I think that everyone listening to this can understand what I'm getting at, that, yeah. you know, the majority of people in our culture, when they extol, like, how beautiful love is and how great it is and how we need to aim our lives at it, they have no clue how to define it. And and that's how usually the, uh, uh, what we call, like, a humanistic world, right. they use the term love all the time, you know, loving um uh, humanitarian efforts, right. say, right, let's go help out these people. Right. Um, and so the words love, love is used in many contexts, right. Right? right? But you're bringing up the point that they really don't know what it is. Right. So it could be, right, there's some people who believe that love is just simply willing the good of another, right, increasing their prosperity or something like that. There's some people who believe, as you said, that it's just happiness, individual happiness. Uh, other people believe that it's pleasure, hedonistic kind of individual pleasure, or maybe it's tolerance, right? Just being infinitely tolerant of another person and their belief systems and their attitudes and their behaviors. Yeah, and that's what I meant by <laughs> happiness is like making someone happy. Right. You know, how? Through the realm of like, say, tolerance. Exactly. You know. Exactly. Uh, uh, maybe a hyper tolerance. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I also pointed to the major Western thinker, 
uh, we're, I think we're going to get into a little Pascal, but mm-hmm. uh, one of the guys who wasn't too into Pascal was a guy named Rousseau. Right? They were both living in France at the yeah. time. And I, I, I honestly believe a lot of what Pascal said is in conflict, in direct and intentional conflict with Rousseau. Yeah, Jacques. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Yeah. Uh, and he, he believed that humanity was essentially good. And so because he believed that humanity was essentially good, the way that I love, I'm, I'm reading his book right now called Emile, which is all about how to raise kids. And his idea is that you should essentially let kids do whatever they naturally want to do, and they'll end up becoming the best versions of themselves. Yeah. And he, the one thing he pointed to of what, yeah. how we're abusing kids is he talks about swaddling. He's like, <laughs> when you swaddle kids, you're not letting them their limbs do what they want. And so you're harming your child and you're making them weak. And so if you unswaddle them and they, you let their limbs go in whatever direction they choose, then they are becoming free and then they're going to become better and they're going to become totally pure. And he argues that the best thing you can do for a kid is just give him as much power as possible because if you empower your child, he will always do the right thing because he's naturally good. Right. And and this is if – you're, if, you're, if you've heard what um, the name of this person, Jean – Jean, Jacques, Jean Jacques Rousseau. <laughs> yeah, and when you it's it's Jean. It yeah. looks like Jean. So if you look it up online, <laughs> it looks like Jean Jacques Rousseau. <laughs> and Jacques <laughs> is like the first part of Jacqueline. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So for uh, so for all the non-French people out there, they're like Jean. Who's that? <laughs> Who's Jean? Well, but you got uh, some French in you. So. <laughs> very much. Yeah. So is he is he wrong or? Yeah, because <laughs> as a father of uh, infant twins, I yeah, beg to differ. Cause I mean, you do that, right? Mom you know, and you dad. don't swaddle them. Oh no, they're free. Yeah, <laughs> what totally I was going to say too is Jean Jacques Rousseau struggled with a obviously a real strong biblical point. Right in the Bible, we read some very serious, um, if you will, um, critiques on human beings. Yeah. One of them is found in the Psalms, or quite a few of them found in the Psalms. But then Paul, in the book of Romans, quotes these Psalms uh, and in chapter 3, mm. right? And, and obviously, people like Jean-Jacques yeah. really struggled with this idea yeah. that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. That there's something wrong with me. Something's wrong with me. Right. Th- this thing we call in the Bible original sin. Right. And so people... Uh, a lot of people in the world, when they use the term love, they're not looking at love through this lens of, oh, well, we're sinners. Right. And we have original sin. Right. And uh, they might be looking at it like, man, we're great. Right. Like like Mr. Rousseau. Right. You know? But and that's how you get to parents who are listening to a two-year-old say, hey, mom, I know I have a penis, but I think I'm a girl. And the mom's saying, okay, I guess you're a girl. Right, you don't get there unless you really believe that the intrinsic thoughts and inner world of your child are perfect and pure, and all you can do is validate. And if you put any restrictions, you're going to actually corrupt their nature and pull them away from their purity. That's that's where you get to it from. So, in other words, when you set up as our culture has done, that love is the most important thing, but then you define love as simple acceptance and tolerance for behavior. If the Bible is right then our number one enemy in this world is ourselves. And if you've taken away any capacity for people to correct and to suggest to someone else, maybe the way you're going is wrong, and it's loving for me to point that out, right? There are loving ways for me to do that, but it is intrinsically loving for me to correct when I see that you are doing destructive things. 
So in every other culture prior to this one, you never really got the idea that people believed that human, human beings were naturally good. They always believed that there was something inherently wrong with human beings that needed to be corrected in some way. But it's only in our modern culture that they don't think that way anymore. They, they don't believe that people should be corrected. We should just let everybody out of prison. We shouldn't, uh, you know, we have an over-incarceration problem. The schools shouldn't be there to actually morally train students. They should only be there to raise them up and to encourage them in the greatest amount of knowledge that they can, right? So morality is no longer something that is communicated at a wide level anymore because the idea is that your kids are just going to naturally turn out okay. They don't need that corrective force to bring them into line. Mm -hmm. So Christian love, like when you look at Christian love and its definition, um, you know, how do you see that as being so different from this culture right now? Right. So <clears throat> even when Jesus is talking about love, the prerequisite for love is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And John, later on, uh, the Apostle John, not Jean-Jacques, you know, <laughs> not the Apostle, Jean. <laughs> not Jean. Uh, the Hebrew form of yeah. the French word. <laughs> <laughs> the Apostle John, in his own epistle, 1 John 3.16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and so we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. John's idea of love is something that is defined. So when he says, by this we know love, he's saying that this is how we understand it. He's like, we don't understand love except for on the precipice of a sacrifice made mm. for fallen sinful human beings. Yeah. So his idea is like, you can't even begin to understand love until you understand that you are fallen and in need of salvation. Then on that foundation stone, you could start building up what it really means to care for another human being, which means you care for them by addressing the greatest difficulties and concerns in their life. And the greatest, the number one difficulty that they got in their life is the war that happens between their actual good and their perceived good that occurs within their fallen minds. So again, the, the number one enemy that I confront on a daily basis is myself, my own wants and desires that pull me away from what actually will benefit me. Yeah. So, you, so if when you go that route and you start going, okay, I, I got, I got a problem, mm. you know, and this is something really neat, and this is something um, I, I read in Blaise Pascal. He says, "Happiness right. is neither outside us nor within us; mm. it is in God." Yeah. He says both outside and within us. Yeah. And so he points to the source of really happiness, which. Right. You know, and, and you can even look in love, right. you know, in that way, too, uh, that it's, it's rooted in God. But yeah. you have to come to this, if you don't have this, this idea that, hey, it's not within me, right. then it seems like you, you take a lot of um, assumptions, right? right? You start, right. And you start saying, hey, you know, I, I do have it together. Right. I do know what I'm doing. Right. I do, you know, and... and and then you really, you really start narrowing your focus right. just on yourself, right. where you're not really thinking too much about other things or other people. Yeah. Because, and you're not really too reluctant because you're, you're thinking that you, your initial uh, reaction, your initial want and desire and wish is right is the correct one yeah. is the correct one yeah right so it's like you it's like when you're at the backyard of a party growing up right. in southern california <laughs> right you you know you get a few in you you know from the keg 
and you and you and you you know you're on impulse right you know and you go it, it you know how can it be so wrong when it feels so right exactly yeah. you know and and thing is this what if everybody moves mm. towards their own their own consideration of what is good to right. them right right what if everybody says oh this is the right right well that's what people do yeah right people pick up a gun and they think it's right to go into a theater and shoot people. Right, because it makes them happy. It makes them happy. Yeah. You know, you know, and we all know this is wrong. Right. But we don't, for some reason, human beings, not for some reason, but yeah. the, <laughs> for the reason we're talking about is the fall of human beings. Right. We struggle immensely yeah. with looking at ourselves and just saying, I don't know. Right. I love what Solomon said to God. He's in a dream and God comes to him and says, hey, you know, I'll give you, you know, what you want, yeah. you know, and, and Solomon says something beautiful. He says, man, I'm like a child. I have no clue what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just love that attitude, you know, of Solomon where he just admits to God in this dream, yeah. you know, of like, God, I, I'm so clueless right now. I just got no understanding. Like it, like it seems like, you know, what a great place to be in, in yeah. your life, to be able to say, hey, you know what, I need something outside of me that is greater than me right. to help me in this endeavor of loving. Right. Like, you know, it's not, it can't just be my impulse, right. you know, um, because my impulse creates a lot of problems, obviously. And that's the seeming contradiction in Christianity. The way to become free mm -hmm. is to submit. Yeah. The way to become happy is to avoid what you think will make you happy, right? right, is, to, right. is to bring yourself underneath. The, the way to become wise is to admit you're a fool. Yeah. The way to love is to actually hate certain things and to recognize the wrong in certain things. Yeah. So there's a, a weird contradiction present within, a seeming contradiction present within Christianity. And I think that that quote from Pascal really sums it up. Happiness is in God. Yeah. I mean, what a mind-blowing, because at the time he was writing, France looked a lot like the United States does right. today. Very much so. And that's what he's saying. He's like, you guys think that happiness is, is in here? <laughs> it's in here. He's like, no, man. Yeah, or it's somewhere to yeah. be found like right. in, in that person or in that you know ski trip or in that, yeah. that that's the ultimate happiness. Right. And he's saying it's not found out there and it's not found in you. Right. You know, it's found in God right. alone. Which, I mean, how many people today and in Pascal's day would say, Man, you follow God, you got to give up happiness. Right. Mm. You know, you need to restrict your happiness. You need to restrict your pleasure. You can't do this and you can't do that. And these are all things I really like to do. And Pascal is saying, no, no, no. You think you're going to be happy by doing these <laughs> things. Right. But you are not going to be happy doing them for long, right? Right. There's momentary pleasure, but it's not going to last forever. But yeah. God will. Yeah. And I think a lot of us, you know, uh, see, when we don't have that, when we don't have that initial thought of like, man, something's <clears throat> wrong with me, like, I need help. Um, you know, then you can only get to a place where, you know, your love is one that's mixed with pride mm. because mm. all you can do at that point in loving is to look down because you can't look up because <clears throat> mm. in order to look up meant, means that you're searching for something. Right. And, and you got it all together. So, so when you say I'm loving someone, it's, it's wrapped up in a self love, mm. uh, self absorbed love. Yeah. It's not coming from that idea of you know what maybe i don't love right. that's the right that's the safe place to go to right 
maybe I'm not loving my wife right. And, and maybe I need some help, hmm. like from a greater source to love the right way. Hmm. And so when you're self-sufficient in love, that's love mixed with pride. Right. And then it's really uh, a forfeiting of love. Right. 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 Of, of what we would think is biblical love, because yeah. love does not seek its own. Right. I thought yeah. Forrest Gump simplified it. <laughs> I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and some people think of love in the, in the sense of like, you know, people go, I, I, you know, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Right. Mm-hmm. And some people say that. Right. You know? <clears throat> well, anytime we see instances of self-sacrifice, mm-hmm. uh, the giving of oneself, we seem to be very moved by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when we contrast that to what you identified as a, our very secular, narcissistic, hedonistic form of love, <clears throat> the contrast is so great that I think we kind of go into self-destruct mode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not, And then we have to ignore... <clears throat> that kind of love and and when it comes to our own relationships it seems like oh well you know love defines everything yeah. and it that that and so definitions become very very important how you define yeah. things and peter and i earlier were talking about the hebrew concepts of love that i thought were really fascinating so i want to encourage all of you listening that if you have the chance to pick up his book called rooted in sin rescued by love i'd encourage you to do so you can pick it up here at the church, but if you want to just get the Kindle version, uh, you can pick it up on Amazon. You can see it there. It's pretty inexpensive for the Kindle version. The paperback is also very inexpensive, so I'd encourage you to pick that up. And then there he goes through all five different words for love in Hebrew. Is it five? Six. Six, sorry, six words, and the concepts and how each one is a component of the full, well-rounded idea of love from the Hebrew authors of the Old Testament's perspective. And I thought it was really, really transformative just hearing some of those concepts myself <clears throat> and would encourage you to check it out if you haven't had a chance to do so already. Well, let's get to some questions. Yeah, what do you think? Let's do, let's do it. it Thank let's you for taking it. time to do that. Yeah. Um, our first question uh, for today is uh, on our website at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And it's uh, Rick asking, what does it mean to plead the blood? Is pleading the bu- blood biblical? I hear it. Uh, this in charismatic churches a lot. Also, what's the Asbury revival happening? <laughs> hmm. Or what is the As- Asbury? Well, to the second yeah. part of the question, I don't know. But <laughs> to the uh, to the the first part of the question, I'll, I'll give a really short answer, and then I think Bo's got a passage he wants to uh, elaborate on this with. So, uh, pleading right when you go into a court, it's it's legal terms, uh, legal jargon, to plead something before the court means essentially to make a case for yourself, right? I'm pleading it. That's, that's why you hear like plea bargain deals and things like that, or pleading guilty or pleading non-guilty. That's going before the court and making your, your plea, your announcement or pronouncement of your guilt versus your innocence. That's the idea there. So when we say we're pleading the blood, I mean, yeah, that, that's a terminology that's really in a lot of more Southern Baptist or Pentecostal churches, but this, it's not an unbiblical one. What you mean is that God is the judge of the earth. He has the right to judge my life and your life. And if I go before God, the only thing I could plead is guilty because I am guilty, right? He has every right to judge me. He has every right to sentence me to an eternity spent separated from him because I haven't acted or behaved in a way that's in concert with his holiness. 
right? So if I act or behave in an unrighteous manner, it's only right for the perfectly righteous one to demand that I don't dwell with him because he only dwells with perfection. That's the right thing for him to do. So if, if that's all I can do, then that means we're all going to hell unless someone has taken our place and died on our behalf. So when we're pleading the blood, it's very different. It's not saying I'm pleading guilty or not guilty. It's instead saying I'm pleading guilty, but someone else has taken my penalty for me. So it would be like if you went into traffic court or something like that, and they're asking you if you plead guilty or non-guilty, and you say, well, I'm, I'm guilty, but I also am paying for it, right? There's a payment that is due for this violation, and I'm paying for it. That's the idea there, that we're pleading guilty, but we're also leaning upon the blood of Jesus to take that payment for us. Uh, so that's that's the kind of understanding of that terminology. Uh, did you want to... Yeah, and I was just saying the passage when you were talking, you know, the passage that comes to mind is just that, is in 1 Peter chapter 2, mm-hmm. when it's talking about the death of Jesus, uh, and it says uh, in verse 24, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And that, that's kind of, I think, the idea of pleading the blood of Christ, is the idea that we are guilty, like you said before, a holy God, and we're in need of uh, forgiveness of sin. Um, you know, uh, whenever you're dealing with certain phrases um, in Christianity, you know, there's a lot of cultural baggage behind these phrases. Yeah. So like uh, the uh, uh, gentleman uh, uh, talked about, he made a mention of the Pentecostal church. And sometimes there are catchphrases that kind of are, are maybe overused a little bit, you know, in a, in a fellowship where, you know, let's plead, you know, plead the blood, brother, plead yeah. the blood. And it can be kind of um, almost like a redundant uh, saying it almost becomes almost like a babble in a way because it, it no longer carries uh, the original meaning mm. of right. the idea. It becomes just a it becomes ca- just like a euphemism. A in euphemism a sense. of yeah. So you know you're 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 dealing with you know you know something in your life. It doesn't matter really what it is, but just yeah. plead, plead the, the blood. blood of Christ. You know, and you're kind of like okay, it sounds good, but I'm not quite sure what that means. So it's not and it, incorrect and it per se. It's just it's kind of a, a an over application of the well, use of the term. Or? And then, and I'll follow that up by saying in Pentecostal circles, the way that they plead the blood is they plead the blood over personal difficulty. So when I'm saying the term plead the blood, it's a courtroom setting. I have a legal responsibility before God because he's judge of the earth. And and and, and, and Paul, right. in his writing, writes in a very legal way when he right. talks about our justification. Right. Um, Those are all courtroom by Christ. terms. Courtroom right? in terms. In fact, righteous, yeah. uh, contrary to what people who grew up in the 80s believe, <laughs> does not mean cool, but it, it actually— Bill it, and Ted's yeah. <laughs> Righteous. <laughs> it, it actually is a term that means justified, right? right? It is also a legal term. But what that sense in pleading the blood means is that I stand before God as not guilty, even though I am guilty. The way yeah. it's applied in Pentecostal circles— is that any illness or any difficulty in my life is a result of God's wrath. So if I'm sick or if my job's not going well, why well, plead the blood over that? 
Or, in other or, words, or the enemy, a lot of times they'll attribute not to God, because God, God's all about blessings and provision, right, right. but it's usually the enemy has a foothold in your life, and right. therefore I have to now circumvent the plans of the enemy by pleading the blood. Exactly, exactly. So it's, it's moved from the courtroom setting into just personal prosperity setting. Yeah. And so that that misses the point. So like spiritual you said, warfare, it becomes applied to spiritual warfare more Exactly. Like. Exactly. So that's that's one of the dangers when we lose the original meaning of a of a phrase, it could be easily corrupted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, you think of first John chapter one, right? If any of us do does sin, we have an advocate. Right. Right. From the Father, Jesus Christ. Right. And mm-hmm. you know, that's the idea of like pleading the blood. Right. We need the blood of Jesus. You know, he is the propitiation for our sins. Mm-hmm. Um, this is that's the idea. Um, but again, you know, in a in a prosperity um, teaching Pentecostal church that believes in um a hundred percent sanctification or a hundred percent healing or right. Um, this kind of financial prosperity, um, then it certainly is taken out of that kind of context. And it, it, in, in, in all honesty, you know, the term, you know, we might, you know, you know, Jesus returns and we say something like, hey, we're pleading the blood. He, he might have to correct us on yeah. how we're using that term. <laughs> you know, he might say, well, no, 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 you guys are yeah. mis-, mis... It's not in the right context. Right. You know, you guys are misusing that term. <clears throat> Speaking of words, I, I always wonder, should we correct when people misuse words because culture has now sort of repurposed a word or its meaning? Uh, or should we roll with the times and just use... Like language is very good because I do a lot of traveling and yeah. and whenever a word means something in one culture it doesn't mean quite the same in another. I always go with what it means to the person I'm talking to, right? Because I'm communicating to them, not to the people who first coined the phrase a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, in in modern culture, the way I've always taken it is I don't mind when people use phrases. I just want them to define their terms. Sure. So I don't mind if someone uses the phrase "plead the blood." Um, but I want to know what they mean by that. Now, if it's in a context or in a meaning that actually contradicts what is right and sound, mm-hmm. then I have to correct that. But, Especially if they're taking the yeah. phrase from Scripture right. and imposing their modern meaning to the meaning of that text. Right. Then that's problematic, especially if it's not the same. So, <laughs> for instance, if uh, you know the word, let's say, revolution or revolutionary has gone through a lot of changes throughout the ages. So when people say Jesus was a revolutionary, well, what do you mean by that? Right? If you're going to talk about the original sense in the term in which he was doing a revolution, a 180 degree turn from the consensus of religiosity of his day, absolutely. If you're going to say revolutionary in the Marxist terminology, where that Jesus was about tearing down political institutions and creating diversity, equity, and inclusion, no, that's not, mm. that's not accurate. Right. Jesus was not a revolutionary figure in that in that sense of the word. So I have to we have to be careful. And in a sense, Jesus Jesus wasn't a cultural revolutionary at all. Right. You know, Jesus believed in um, in creator's intent. Right. And and so if anything, Jesus was very old school. Right. And the way he looked at things, a, a real a real conservative in the in the real meaning of the sense. Not and actually, yeah, the, the the more appropriate term would be he was a reformer. Yeah, right. So he wasn't revolting against anything. He was reforming it back to what it should have been, bringing it back to its its, right. its original purpose. Right. 
So when he talks about marriage and divorce, everybody freaks out because he doesn't go with the sign mm. of the times. Right. He doesn't just roll in this kind of like, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just roll where we're going. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good lead into our next question. Speaking of words changing, I remember when the word gay meant happy or joy, and then yeah. it, mean, it meant uh, same-sex relationships, and and then sort of culturally became a euphemism for people who are just being off-putting, like, you know, don't oh. be, you know, just oh, yeah, someone yeah. who's just out of, that was definitely <laughs> my, my era. You know, it never meant, it never life. meant you are same sex attracted. It meant stop being a loser. <laughs> yeah. It was more like a term for saying like, you're a jerk, but it was yeah, you're being it was, a jerk, you're like a jerk you yeah. Know, yeah. kind of thing. So, uh, Mary Jo, uh, wants to know what are your thoughts regarding the inclusive churches and homosexual pastors? So those churches who have now said, well, <clears throat> We do need to be revolutionaries in the latter sense of the term, and we do need to be more inclusive, especially with those um, who are not in the same uh, uh, sexual orientation that we are uh, as heterosexuals or cisgendered or whatever it might be. And so how do you respond to those churches and pastors? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this goes back into our definition of love at the top that if my definition of love, loving people, loving my neighbor as myself, which is the supreme ethic that Jesus gives us, if I accept that terminology to mean acceptance, right, and that's what it really means, then these churches are doing what they believe is most loving, right? So they are, they are attempting to follow or fulfill scripture by uh, redefining terms and moving their ideology into the biblical parlance, right? So in other words, they're not taking the Bible and understanding it and reading it into what they should be doing. They're already doing something, or they already have a belief, and they're reading the Bible into that belief. And that's a very different thing. So when you go into the Bible, it's like, where in the Bible can someone give a accurate or good or relevant argument for the fact that God is tolerant of sin in general, right? That God is accepting of sin or he's accepting of people who are uh, accepting of behavior that we would deem sinful. And then can you further give uh, a way of understanding that homosexual behavior is not considered sinful within Scripture? So this is the mistake that's been made, and it, it's really insidious one, because what it's essentially done is it's not only influenced the people who believe they're being loving by accepting people within, they've also convinced the people in the LGBTQ community that you are not wanted by churches unless they accept your behavior. So in other words, there might be someone who sincerely is seeking after God, but because they've been told by the culture, if people don't accept this behavior that you have, they hate you. They could actually believe that, right? They could actually believe that, and they won't be able to accept that someone might be loving them by correcting them. Now, they have to participate with that lie to a certain extent, but it's still a lie that's been taught to them and a lie that might preclude them from ever pursuing biblical Christianity, like going to an actual Bible-believing church. Because, you know, of all the issues that progressive Christianity has, in my opinion, that's a minor one, and that should show you how big their issues are, right? Because that is a pretty major issue. But their view, they, it is a heretical, I, I don't, uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, progressive <clears throat> Christianity is a heretical sect of Christianity. Um, it's about as heretical as Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness. Their views of God are different than ours. Their views of salvation are totally different than ours. They don't believe, they, they believe kind of in the divinity of Christ, but not really. 
They definitely don't believe he was perfect. They don't believe in our need for salvation via the cross, right? So it is a heretical brand of Christianity for sure. Yeah, and I would I would um, kind of um, answer this one um, kind of an interesting way, um, you know, and, and, and that is when I read Galatians chapter three. In verse 28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know, when I think of inclusion, I think, man, we're all included. Everybody's included. You know, um, every, you know, you know, our church, I hope, is a church that includes all people. Right. Um, I want. Uh, you know, I hope every church on, on the planet is a church that includes all people, yeah. uh, because the church is made up of all people, yeah. all kinds of people. <clears throat> the problem is thinking that Jesus somehow um, looked at the Word of God, which He is the Word made flesh, but looked at the the, if you will, the historical. Um, events of 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 history um specifically the time of moses uh in mount sinai and somehow everything was just a uh like not that big of a deal or not that important right um so when jesus comes on the scene what does jesus say i have not come to abolish the law right uh right i have not come to abolish the things of old right i've come to fulfill them Hmm. right and so, you know, everybody is included to be in the church of Jesus Christ. Right. Everybody is, you know, in a sense, the door is open. Yeah. You know, it, but we have to come to an understanding uh, of that the scriptures speak loud and clear yeah. about the intent of God yeah. in his creative uh, work uh, and purpose in human beings. Yeah. And Jesus made it clear, you know, God made them at the beginning male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. It's all wrapped up in the image of God, yeah. the creation of man and women right. and family. Um, it, it points to the glory of God to to neglect all this. Yeah. Um, you're not really, that's not an inclusive church. Uh, to me, that's not an inclusive church. That is um, that is no longer a church. Right. You know, the Church of Jesus Christ lives uh, uh, in holding. Um, what does it say in Timothy? <clears throat> it's a pillar and ground of the truth. Right. I mean, what makes a church a church, uh, a true church? Right. Mm. The spiritual church is the truth of the of God's word. Right. You know, we all sin. We all stumble in many ways, James says. Yeah. You know, but we have to we have to come to grips with it's not right. Yeah. Like something's wrong with us. Yeah. And I like the you know <laughs> it was like a year ago, but you and I were at the Salvation Army up in Phoenix. Yeah. And we were talking about homosexuality and there was oh, a yeah. there was a guy in there who was into same sex attraction. Yeah. And he started calling us out and he goes, Well, you know, the church calls out homosexuality. But what about lust? And what about, and he starts going down all these sexual sins that he perceived as the church not touching. And we're like, no, you're right. Yeah. 
we are sinners. You know? That's right. So, yeah, so his, idea, his idea is you shouldn't judge me because there are sexual sins that you're guilty of. But what you're saying is, no, no, the way that the church is inclusive is not by saying we're all inclusively accepted without transformation or repentance, but actually we're inclusively enjoined as sinners in need of salvation and therefore repentance. That's right. So his idea was like, well, you're sinners too. And our response is, you're right. Yeah. You're right, which is yeah. why I need I salvation. I wouldn't argue that at all. And, yeah. <laughs> I need salvation. Amen, and I need brother. forgiveness and I need <laughs> repentance in my life, man. That's right. You're right. But, right. you know, he was bringing it up more of like, well, you're not repenting and you're not saying, we're like, no, we, we, <laughs> we, we see our issues. We see our sexual issues as well. So it's, it's very important to distinguish that, that the mm-hmm. inclusivity of the church is perfect inclusivity into, first of all, the wrath of God, which then allows us to receive the grace of God. Yeah, that's right. And it's um, what's really interesting about, uh, and I've gone to some churches that are, uh, quote, inclusive churches, you know, uh, in, the, in the San Francisco area. Um, but what's interesting um, is that you know there are they're very passionate um, on many issues, mm-hmm. on on many issues. So it's not like they don't. It's not like uh, that kind of a church doesn't have a belief system on other sins right. that need to be wiped out. Right. Or other, you know what I mean? Right. Like it's not like they just like are inclusive of like, hey, it doesn't matter what you do or who you are, just come on in. It doesn't matter at all. No way. They're passionate. <laughs> people yeah if someone was a neo-nazi <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they would not say come that's on right. in you know there's, there's there is a theology <laughs> there is a theology yeah, yeah. Right. and and that's what we have to understand <clears throat> is like you know we you know uh we have to look back to just the word yeah, and sure. and we can't uh you know we can't just have theology the way both thinks right you know there's a good dialogue and i i i'm not uh endorsing or nor suggesting that anyone here would endorse all the views expressed but Sean McDowell uh, from Biola University has a podcast that he does, and he's live stream- he does it on YouTube, and he had a very interesting conversation with a progressive Christian just trying to identify what are the key differences and how they view those. So I'd encourage you to take a look at it. There's a kind of a screenshot of, of the dialogue. It's Sean McDowell and Kobe Martin, just to kind of give you a little bit of a uh, landscape idea of what does it mean to be a progressive Christian? They attempt to tackle that, and so I'd, I'd encourage you to check it out if you really wanted to delve into that. Yeah. And uh, speaking of uh, love, our, our next question uh, revolves around a similar subject. He wanted to know if we should treat, when it comes to loving your neighbor um, and loving one another, should we love believers, those in the church, differently, not necessarily less or more, but differently than those who are strangers or outsiders or those mm. who are not of the faith. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, you should. So, There's a passage, I'm trying to think where yeah. it's out, right, right when you said the question, I thought, you know, it, Paul says, especially yeah. the people of God. The brethren, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'll have to look it up, but yeah. it, he's talking about our good works. Right. And, he's ta- and then he says, but especially the, the church. Right. So, and, and you see this in Jesus's ministry as well. So it's not that the level or the quantity of God's love is distinguished uh, or differentiated between people groups, but the application of that love is. So, for instance, you go into the Old Testament, did God love the nation of Israel in a different way than the Gentile nations? 
And the answer is absolutely, right? And God says that out loud, right? really, really clearly. There are many times in the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel where he says, if you guys were any other nation, I would have just wiped you out, right? There are all these other nations that are around you that have committed the same sins like the Canaanites before you, and I've just annihilated them, right? I've completely destroyed them. But you, I'm leaving a remnant because of my fidelity to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God is directly saying, yes, I am loving you in a different way than the nations around you. And in the New Testament, Jesus, again, he has love for everybody, but you also see him shunning the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and embracing the tax collector and the the harlot who repent. Now, what this shows is that Jesus actually is, even though he loves the world equally, there is a differentiation in which he shows love. And this is a mistake that I think a lot of Christians can make when they get into the whole uh, globalistic view of Christianity and they think, well, we're citizens of the world. We have no direct fidelity to our personal nation or our family. We need to love the world equally. Well, actually, that's not your job, first off. That's God's job. But secondly, that's not accurate. Of course, your responsibilities are to your own first, uh, which would include the body of Christ. So Paul in 1 Timothy 5, he says, those who cannot support their own family, especially members of their own household, have denied the faith and are worse than a non-believer. Right? If I don't provide sustenance for someone who is outside my family, I am not necessarily a sinful person. But if I fail to provide for my family, I have, I'm worse than a non-believer in the eyes of Paul. So obviously I have responsibilities to the people in my immediate proximity that exceed those who are outside of my immediate bubble. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, by the way, has a really great, it's hard to read because Jonathan Edwards was a pretty big brain and uh, he usually tried to simplify the things that he wrote but he died before he got a chance to do it. So it's called True Virtue versus Common Virtue. He never simplified it, so it's very complicated, but a really, really interesting read where he makes that argument that the only way to actually love the world is to love God, that my direct responsibilities have to be to family, mm-hmm. to, to nation, and to the people around me and fellow believers. But if I want to love the world, I have to love God and trust that God is giving supreme equality in love and care to the world. But I'm not supposed to do that. That's not my job. Yeah, and I, and and it's and what you what you're touching on is really important, and, and that is the facets of love. Like mm-hmm. we can't simplify love just to be one thing. Right. Like, oh, love is, um, you know, just being tolerant of everything. Right. Our love is just being kind to everything. Um, there is a a moment where the most loving thing to do in the scriptures is to avoid a divisive person after the second admonition. Right. Mm. And that mm. is a loving thing to do. Right. And and so you know, and we understand this as human beings because we understand that if someone's coming to harm your children, the most loving thing you can do mm. is you must have a necessary hating in order to love properly. Mm. You have to necessary you have to have a necessary hating of that violent action that is coming against your kid mm. in order to love your kid properly and protect them and procure their freedom from that violent act. And Jesus hints on this in John. I think it's chapter 12 where he's going to go to the Father and he says he says unless you hate your life in this world, yeah. mm. you cannot have eternal life. There must there is a necessary hating to love. Yeah. To love properly. Mm. And this is this is where people 
kind of struggle. They go, whoa, that doesn't sound right. But it, but it, it's practically right. We know it is, like right. just in the example I gave every, uh, gave everybody, right, yeah. with your kids. Yeah. It's, we know it's right. Yeah. You have to, a, a, a parent who's sitting on a couch mm. watching a game with a six pack, right? And, and the door front door is open and a little one and a half year old mm. is walking outside the front door uh, we would not say that that's a loving father. Right. That father has to love that kid properly. He has to necessarily, in a in a hyperbole kind of way, hate something. Right. He's got to hate that beer. I didn't realize you he's were spying hate, on me yesterday. Yeah, he got to hate that TV. Or yeah. you know what I mean? He's got to have a necessary hating of something in order to love right. and make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. And. And so, you know, so it, it, you know, should you love your neighbor? Yeah, but the, but the, the nuance of it yeah. is, is how do you love your neighbor right. properly? Right. You know, what, in what way? Like, do, do you know your neighbor first? Do you know them or do you have a relationship with them? Mm. Um, how is that re- relationship developed? You know, what are the nuances of that relationship? Because it might be that you need to put up a boundary. Mm. And that is the right mm-hmm. loving thing to do with your neighbor. Yeah. So and the world uh, often says things like, oh, well, shouldn't you love such and such group of people? Oftentimes they would be fall into a category where you would be compromising your moral values in order to embrace, like the inclusive right. question that we had, mm-hmm. that the perception or the accusation is, Oh, you guys talk about love, but you're not really loving people because you won't accept that group of people. Well, that's the you just said the word. People, yeah. you just said the magic word, though, right? Accept, right? And, and like, there's that's a loaded word. It is, yeah. right? Like, you know, and I, I've unfortunately counseled people that have been uh, essentially exposed to individuals who have abused them in the name of religion. So, in other words, in the name of a parent being a missionary figure or something like that. They've brought people into their home that are a mess and end up abusing, sometimes often sexually abusing the children of that home. And in their mind, they're like, well, I'm just trying to love like Jesus. You know, I don't want to have any boundaries. I don't want to, you know, and I'm so I'm trying to bring these people in. I'm trying to love them the best way I can. And the answer, the correct response is no, that's not love, right? That's not love for your kids who you have the greater responsibility towards. And it's not even love for the person that you're accepting into your house because you just enabled them to do a sin that is horrific and terrible, of which they now have to, if they ever do repent of it, they're going to have a long way to go of making amends to your child who they just abused and violated in an irreversible way, right? So there's there's no way that you could look at that situation and say it's loving, but people have excused that behavior in the name of tolerance, and it's not mm. actually tolerant. That's especially difficult, or I should say the lines get a little more blurred when it comes to parenting. Mm. Should the parent of a teenage kid who's hooked on drugs, dropping out of school, Mm -hmm. getting in trouble, kick them out as a tough love? Or, you know, sometimes the logic is, well, they're... You know they're safer here at home. I'd rather them be doing drugs at home than doing drugs out on the streets because they'll they'll die out there. Yeah. Uh, you know. I don't know. We've done a lot of counseling over the years with a lot of people like that. I mean, uh, that's been going on forever. Um, and and there's too much nuance yeah, to to I answer that. answer that simply. Hmm. Um, 
every situation has its has its uh, specific uh, kind of um, situations going. And, um, you know, I, I would just say this, that, you know, whatever you do, whatever parent is going to do and whatever you're going to do, you have to do it under the Lord. Mm-hmm. And you have to make decisions in faith, you know, and that's really important. Whatever's not done in faith is sin. Mm. And so we have to bring things like, you know, you have to bring your fears before God and lay those fears down at the cross, really, in the, in the sense of just saying, God, you know, I, I bring them, you know, and I need to get those things crucified in a sense in me, you know, um, so that I'm not making decisions out of fear, but more out of faith, you know? So that's what I would say to that. By the way, that passage I was trying to refer to was Galatians chapter six, verse 10. Therefore, uh, let us have opportunity to do good. Let us do good to all people, especially to the family of believers. Yeah, and you, and you see that in the New Testament, right? They, they yeah. offer aid to the churches and not the people outside. But one last thing I'll say real quick <clears throat> before we run out of time is going off of what you're getting at mm-hmm. is like if, uh, if essentially somebody is a stranger outside and they're influencing my child into bad behavior, it should be the last possible decision to put my child out of the home. So I'm not saying it precludes it, like you can't do it, but there are other options available before you exhaust that and move to like, because that's like a nuclear option. Hmm. So, Well, thanks so much uh, for tuning in. If you have a chance, uh, check out our app. And if you want to ask questions via email, you may do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Same place, same time tomorrow. Be there and uh, we'll be looking forward to having your questions throughout the week. God bless you. and Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.